Okay, it is time to get started. This is where our worship is focused on the very Word of God. Is God fair? To us, that's easy. Uh, I'm just, uh, what do they say, uh, talking to the choir? <clears throat> I think I lost my voice. <laughs> It'll come back. After talking about election and reprobation and double predestination last week, somebody who doesn't know these doctrines would be saying, what kind of God are you talking about? I don't want that kind of God. It can sure be offensive when you talk about these doctrines that we have come upon in Romans 9. Uh, it can certainly sound strange and foreign to the evangelical world of our day. Most would think that we're crazy, that we would be some kind of a cult, but yet this is biblical and it's very foundational to the faith. It is something that is very key to the Christian to know this. Why has it been hidden from the church for the last hundred years or so? Or throughout the ages it is hidden. It's about the sovereignty of God. That God would choose some and others pass them by and not choose them. That is a horrible doctrine, some will say. But we have this verse, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. There is another one that's very controversial. Uh, people have their explanation for that, but we'll get into that today. But we can say what God has already said in, um, in Romans 9. He said that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It's all Him. had nothing to do with Jacob or Esau on what they would do or say or what they wouldn't say or do. And everything with God's choice, His purpose. And this is how God has designed it. People may not like that. And I know that people will say, that isn't fair. And I know that God is fair, so therefore that is not right. Your interpretation fails. And so they'd have to argue up against some of the giants in the faith, starting with God. <laughs> of course, He's not in the faith. He doesn't have to believe. He is. But if you th take all the Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, you take Paul especially who writes this, then the early church fathers, and especially Augustine. Um, of course, we think of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all those reformers back in that time, 1600s, 1700s, you had the, the Puritans as such, Jonathan Edwards. Of course, you had people like uh, John Owen, John Bunyan, who wrote the best-selling book ever besides the Bible called Pilgrim's Progress. All of these people we stand with. We are not strange and alien according to God's Word. We are believing His Word. Uh, the church today wants to refuse what we're going to be talking about today. As a matter of fact, they would think that we would be cultic because of it. Well, if we are cultic, we are standing with the giants. And we're standing on the very Word of God. And I challenge them to come up 
with the solution to what this passage is dealing with. It's difficult. It's hard to understand. But if you believe the Bible and you've studied any of this at all, it is joyful. It is something that you take great pleasure in because you see a sovereign God. And He is in control of everything. And so anyway, the question would be is, how can a God like this be right if that's what you're saying? Uh, the question would be, how can this be just? Is God just then? And we kind of have started with a question and we'll go into another question a day. From Romans 9, 1-13, through if you weren't with us last week, that is foundational to what election is. The whole chapter is, and Paul keeps building his argument, you have nothing left after it is done. You stand naked before truth that just melts you down to nothing. And you see a holy God who is in total control of His free will. His free will. You see, Paul is concerned about the Jews and that's why Romans 9 comes up and he'd be willing, he would be favorable in the sense to die for his fellow Jew and go to hell even, to be condemned. That's how much he loved them. And we are to love the lost, love the people in our families that don't know God and they need Him. We love them and it's almost like we do everything. I don't think I would really want to go to hell because of that. But Paul knew that that was impossible because he already said nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he says, but impossible. If I could do that for my fellow kinsmen, I, I would. You see, we see him building on this argument then. He says this, but they would say, yeah, what about the Jew then? Uh, I thought they were all going to be saved because they're Jews. Because they were born of Abraham. Well, speaking of Abraham, did you know that Abraham was chosen by God? Did you know it was not Abraham's free will that got him to be a believer? It was God Himself because God came to Abraham. Abraham was not searching out God. And we know that all unbelievers never search God and they never will unless God converts their soul, regenerates the heart. So Abraham followed what God said. It was counted to him as righteousness as he believed God. And then we know that Isaac came along, his son, and Isaac was chosen instead of Ishmael, even though Ishmael was born first. Uh, about 12 years difference between them, but God said, no, I have a chosen one and his name is Isaac. Isaac had Isaac and his wife had also uh, two sons. They were twins, as a matter of fact, born from the same father and the same mother. They were twins. They were bosom buddies, I guess you could say, in the sense, or they, you know, they were in the womb together. And we know that Esau came out first, but Jacob is the one that is chosen by God. Esau is not. And that, again, is another illustration that God kept choosing even when the twins could not even choose God or say anything good or say anything bad or do anything good or bad because they weren't born yet and that's when God chose them and it was long before there was creation. 
And so it had nothing to do that, well, they would believe God, so he would choose them. Where in the Bible do we ever see that? Where in Romans 9 do we see it? We do not see that. But they're making it up. And so therefore they make it say something different. God is totally sovereign, but they say, if that's the kind of God you have, He isn't fair. He's not fair to the ones who don't get to go to heaven. Uh, Would that make Him unjust? That is the question that we have to ask. Is God unjust? So you know what they do? They apologize for God. And they say that the kind of God that I have cannot do that and He would not do that. He would give a choice to everybody. So what do they do with Romans 9? Uh, One of the favorite things to do is just ignore it. It's not there. They never read it. They will never teach it. Nobody will ever even want to go there because they say, that's kind of scary. I can't understand it. It's too deep for me. Let's don't do that one. Uh, Or they will say, well, it doesn't really mean what you think it is saying there in the plain English. It's saying something different. What are those things? Well, we'll probably get into that a little bit. So what we're going to do today, uh, starting in verse 13, which is where we left off last week. We were in that a little bit, but that's Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's difficult. Very, very difficult. We have to wade through this. We have to work through it. Uh, if I were from an Arminian side, I would just skip that. Matter of fact, I'd skip the whole next section because it doesn't get any better for them. It gets harder for them to explain it away and they can't. So therefore, they don't talk about it. God is just. God is righteous. God has a purpose and He desires to do it, He will do it. He always does what He says. And even though man whines and cries and complains and says God is not like that, man has problems with the absolute sovereignty of God. I think all Christians would say they believe in the sovereignty of God. He rules, He reigns. And if they don't say that, well then uh, they're not calling Him Lord. They're not Christians. All Christians believe in the sovereignty of God, but there's something that they're not getting, and it's called the absolute sovereignty of God all the way to the matter of salvation. He is absolute sovereign. That means He does what He wants. He chooses what He will. His desires will be met. And so an absolute sovereign God is in electing some to salvation. God is righteous in doing that. He's also righteous in not choosing others or passing by others and that's where we get into double predestination and we'll get into that a little bit more. And I know that a lot of people, if they were listening to this, would be shutting this off right now because they say, I, I believe in a sovereign God and I believe in election, but the double predestination I have a major problem with. Well, then you have a major problem with God. You have a problem with chapter 9 here uh, and many other places. Uh, you see, God is righteous and this is theodicy. 
That's your title for the day. A seminary term. We are talking seminary theology. And so therefore, put on your thinking hats. God has given you a mind and you can understand much of what we're talking about today because the God that we know gives us the Holy Spirit. Every one of us can believe these things and that they would have an impact on our lives because of it. We have a bigger God than we can even imagine. And one of the mottos of our church is a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. Those two are at the top of this church body. And so therefore, we take God seriously. And more and more, our lives want to line up to that. A high view of God, a high view of Scripture, as we give glory to Him. Let's pray. Father, holy God, You are awesome in all Your ways. Lord, we do come into a difficult text. And I know that it's not popular among the church of our day. And for many decades, it has not been popular at all. But Lord, even despite that, we recognize the brothers and sisters who we know that don't necessarily believe what we're going to teach today. We know that many of them are true Christians. We do not deny that. We would love to have a ministry to them to show how deep these doctrines are, how high they are, and how important they are for us to know. It takes us to a different level of your glory when we understand these things, and we are blessed absolutely. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be a church who wants to hold true to these great doctrines It's all by you. It's not by any of us that have come that far. It's where you've taken us and where you are taking us to the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 9. Let's read it. We're starting at verse 13. Stand. This is high doctrine, folks. Just as it is written, get that word, written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Well, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You can be seated. This is quite a text. This is the sunum bonum. We're at the heart 
of what God is about in His salvation, and it's really about what God is about in every sense of His sovereignty. You want a sovereign chapter of the Bible? Right here in Romans 9, we're at the heart. Don't miss a word of God's Scripture here, folks. <coughs> Stay awake. Hold on, because this, what He has to project to us in our minds and our hearts is something that is overwhelming and you can't have help to give Him great praise. <coughs> I think the enemy would like to take my voice today. <coughs> But I'm going to take a drink of tea here. And I am going to get ready. We're going to start in verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You'll notice Paul starts off with backing his statements up by using Scripture. Even though he's inspired to write the New Testament... He always backs up his statements with Old Testament truth. What is written? What has been said before? If you were saying it to a Jew, they would go, oh yeah. And he's used Abraham, he's used Isaac, he's used Jacob, he's used Sarah and Rebekah. Uh, Jacob and Esau is where he left it off. And he said, I chose Jacob, Esau I hated, I didn't choose him. And then he says this is because of God's purpose according to His choice or according to His election. That it would stand in that way. So we've already seen election of Israel, but also the patriarchs and all who are chosen will come to faith because of what God does. Jesus preached it also. Paul preached it. It's throughout Scripture. Last week, as we were in 13, we left off because it was time to stop and we went way over time. I'm hoping not to do that this week, but if we do come to a point where I need to stop, we can carry on next week, can't we? It's valuable stuff here, and if you already know it, that's okay. Don't go to sleep because there are more things to learn out of this doctrine because you'll never fully understand it. And it will take an eternity to know what all this is about. But it is about knowing God. That's why we exist, to know Him. So, last week we talked about election and reprobation. We will continue that on here. How could God hate anyone? Dennis, surely this means something else. God is a God of love. How many times have we heard that? We know that. Do we agree with that? Absolutely. He's so loving that He does what He does in what we're talking about here. He proves His love. But Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Uh... How could God hate anyone? Well, I'll tell you what. Romans 9 is, that chapter is the most forthful, forthright statement on double predestination that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And we've already seen it. In the first 13 verses, it continues on. I know many don't like it. I wouldn't start off with it to evangelize people. You don't have to worry about that. 
God will teach that to them as time goes on. We know what we present with young young believers even, right? And there is a time to learn this, and I think early on will be very good by reading the book of Ephesians and show that they have been chosen by God. And I can't think of anything more encouraging than that. Why should that turn anybody off? It should really eject us into uh, the area where Christ is and uh, sit in the heavens there thinking on that. But I will say, this is written, that means it's taken out of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, and we know that it's out of Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, and if you were to turn back to the Old Testament, uh, right at the end of the Old Testament as a matter of fact, and you look at chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord in verse 1, Uh, to Israel. Here's the message to Israel through Malachi. It says, I have loved you, Israel. I've loved you. Says Yahweh. But you say, well, how you loved us. Because God's bringing judgment on and Malachi is going to tell them about it too. And he says, uh, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, Israel, but I have hated Esau. So he worked through Jacob, through the twelve tribes of Jacob, and that's the line. He did not work through Esau. Aren't you glad of that? It was God's will to go that way. And he said, I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. That's Esau's people, Edom. The Lord is indignant, angry at forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Uh, I will say the context here is He's showing... There are nations here, once Jacob or Israel, and there also is the one who followed, the, the people followed after and were descendants of Esau. They were put east of Israel in that mountainous desert region. They were always thorns in the side to Israel, and so they were enemies. God never intended to choose this Esau and all of his descendants. So, what do we have here? We have nations. And this is where people will say, see, he's not talking about individuals, Jacob and Esau and Romans, because in Malachi, where he quotes from, he's talking about nations. And we go, yeah, he is also actually talking about the individuals there, but it is nations, so we must be fair, let's not be contradictory, uh, but let's think of Romans 9. Paul is starting with nation, the nation of Israel, that they were chosen, but inside the nation of Israel are individuals who are chosen. And that was really what the first, uh, what was it, five verses that we saw in Romans 9? He talked about the true Israel. True Israel is uh, one who is a Jew, who was born of as a descendant of Abraham who is chosen who comes to faith in Christ 
That is a true Jew. One who's a true believer. Abraham would have been a true Jew. Isaac, Jacob, all the chosen ones then out of the nation of Israel. It's not automatic just because you're born Jewish. And Jesus made that very clear whenever He came to the world and preached the Gospel. And so He, he condemned Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious people. And people were thinking that because they're Jewish, they are highly favored. And so therefore, they're going to the, they are part of the kingdom of God already. It doesn't matter what they do. No matter how religious, how non-religious, if you're a Jew, you're a Jew, you're saved. Paul refutes that. That's what he did. That's what we looked at last week. Would you agree with that? That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, so not all who are Jews are saved. Only the elect Jews, that's the true Israel. So, and that's what you're kind of seeing now in Romans 9. As he quotes from Malachi, God did choose Israel. God did choose Jacob. God chose those that nation and the other one he condemned. Well, Romans 9 definitely has already started with the individuals. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob over Esau, right? Individuals. Not just nations now. And as he comes up and finishes that section, which is what we're starting with today, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now who's he speaking there of? The nations? No. Even though it entails that, Malachi has already said that. Can Paul do that in expositing Scripture? Yes, he can, because you'll see it quite frequently where they take passages and not misquote, they quote it correctly, but they put a deeper meaning even with it. Not distorting it and making it say something different, but making it fit the context where Paul is already at. He uses that, jumps off with it, and says... Don't you remember Jacob, the individual I loved, Esau I hated, because he's talked about twins. That's not nations. He's talking individuals. And as we go and develop this, he will continue on with Moses and Pharaoh, and then he'll build it up even more. We've got to stay in the context. Where's it going? You can't dismiss this and say it's nations because you're cutting it off right there and you're not going on as he furthers his argument. We cannot cut off what Paul has already talked about and will talk about. And you see, that's what gets people into trouble when they try to do exposition. They say they're expositors and they'll quickly cover something and pick and choose what they want. They don't go by words or a particular verse and get an idea because they want to cover the whole chapter or most of it, so they go through it very rapidly. They're not going to tell you about what about predestination. What are you going to do when somebody asks you about that? What about election? What about uh, these kind of things? What about the Jew? How are you going to answer them, right? You build upon arguments. Do what Paul did. Quote the Scripture. What are they going to say? I don't feel that God would do that kind of thing. I, I have a different God. Yeah, well, they may have. They might have an idol. They've made out God to be very comfortable in the way that they want it because... You know who it really is pointing at? They might be them. Yeah, you don't understand my, 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 my parents. You know, maybe God chose them. You know, maybe He did. Uh, you know, but at the same time, they have a choice though, you know. 
And are they going to Scripture? That's all you have to ask. Where, where did you get that? Let's, let, so that's why we're going to continue on here in our Romans 9. Now you're going to say, okay, well, Dennis, you still have to explain this word hate. Uh, there are people that do not like the word. Uh, I have to admit my humanist does not... I hate the word hate. <laughs> Uh, and we are never to use that hate, uh, and kids don't use this as an opportunity to say, what's well, in the Bible, God hates, so therefore I can go hate. Well, actually, it is true, and I'll, we'll go to the a couple of verses about that, but we are to love people. There are different degrees of love. I love my neighbor, as I'm commanded to, that lives next door, but I do not love my neighbors like I love my wife who has happy birthday today. <laughs> she is special to me, and I must say that uh, in some senses I chose her, but she chose me. <laughs> but uh, maybe God put that together Amen. in His sovereignty, absolutely, because I couldn't have done it. But I will tell you, it's the best thing that ever happened to me outside of knowing the Lord. And so Carolyn is very, very dear to me. And I'm so thankful that she's helped with this ministry all throughout the whole time we started and has never bucked against it, ever. And uh, she supports the church heartily. You, know, you guys know her, but anyway, I just wanted to say happy birthday. It happened to be right in the middle of uh, hating and loving. I <laughs> God has a holy hatred. And hang on with that because we're, we're going to prove it. That means He has a perfect hatred. We are to love people and the only way we can love them is through God's love, His agape, right? There's some people really hard to love. Easy to hate, but we can't hate them. There is a hatred of the iniquity and the sin and there is what where David talks about that perfect hatred. We'll get to that, but... You know, John Murray said this. I thought he said it very well. I might read this twice. Esau was not merely excluded from what Jacob was given or enjoyed, but was the object of displeasure, which love would have excluded, and of which Jacob was not the object because he was loved. Murray says Esau was not merely excluded from what Jacob enjoyed. He was excluded from it. But he was the object of displeasure. God was displeased with Esau. Which love would have excluded. And of which Jacob was not the object like Esau was because Jacob was loved. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and I know we're all having trouble with this one. How do I explain this? I believe it, Dennis, but how do I explain it? Well, it says that God hated him. Do you take the word of God to be true? And I, and I know sometimes there are words that we have to explain, and sometimes it sounds like we're explaining it away or something. What does the original language mean and such? But let God hate if he wants to hate, does he hate evil? Yes. Do you hate evil? Yes. 
He hates idolatry. Do you hate idolatry? Yes. He hates paganism. Do you hate paganism? Yeah. Why? Because God hates. He hates Esau. He hates. God hates. I've never said it that way before. I have to because I just read it. It would be easy to skip over that and move on, wouldn't it? Jacob, I love it. He's all hated. Now moving on to verse 14, what should we say then? Well, did God mean that? What I'm going to do is take some time here and we're going to read about God's hate. Now, I don't know how many here really had a Sunday school class when you were kids. I don't even know if there's any of you that went to Sunday school class. Oh, we have one back there. There's another one. Three. Oh, we have more than I thought. Okay. We do have a little background. And I bet you none of you ever heard your Sunday school teacher said, God hates. Never. And usually you're not going to hear me say that. I have to only do it in the context. I have to do this. Because God says it. So we have to see what it means. Are you guys ready to see about what God says about His hatred? It's mind-blowing. Are you ready? You say, well, how come I never saw these before? Well, because nobody taught it. And if you did read it, you just moved on. And, so, and you probably said it must mean something else. Well, actually, it doesn't. Uh, in Psalm 5, 5, I want to start in verse 4, though. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, the psalm writer says, it's David, you hate iniquity. No. You hate all who do iniquity. Did you ever see that verse before? Did you ever pay attention to it? I think it's saying what it's saying. He hates anybody who does iniquity. It's a perfect hatred. It's a holy hatred. It's coming from God. People's hatred is another thing. They break all the commandments. Okay, that's just one, Dennis. No, it's two because we read Romans 9. No, we're going to go further than that. Okay, 11. Psalm 11, verse 5. This is throughout Scripture, folks. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgment are on high out of His sight. As for all... His adversaries, he snorts at them. That was 10.5. Now you ready for 11.5? Did you see that? He snorts at them. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence. His soul hates. The very being of God hates the unrighteous the wicked he hates. Have we seen it more than once? That's why we back up Scripture with Scripture. That's why we use the Old Testament thoroughly because Paul did that constantly. 
we go back there and see this story, we see the context, and we see that writers like David here knew who the iniquity, iniquitous person was and what they did. Go to Psalm 26, verse 5. I hate the assembly of evildoers, all of them that gather together, all the ones that are evildoers, I hate them. I will not sit with the wicked. This is a psalm of David, actually. And he says this, and it's inspired by God. David is saying, I'm not going to go with them. I will not be with them. I'm not going to sit with the scoffer or the wicked, you know, in Psalm you think of Psalm 1, and then you think of Psalm 2, and uh, David hated the assembly of evildoers. He says that under the inspiration of God. So does God. We're already seeing verses about that. Psalm 1, I'm just going to do this out of memory, and uh, 139. Psalm 139. This is about God being sovereign and He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent and all that, you know. Uh, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. He's speaking to God here. He's saying they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Oh, we hear that all the time. We should not take God's name in vain. It seems to be a favorite term by people who don't know the Lord. Verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? David is saying this to God. And it's perfectly right. He's inspired to say this. He says, Don't I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? It's about God's character and His nature. It's about who God is. God hates them. David hates them. Because it's against God. That's a righteous, godly anger. And uses that word. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies because they're enemies of God. And you know what he says then? He says, check me out, God, if my thoughts are right. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. For try me and know my anxious thoughts. Oh Lord, if it's wrong, please strike me. Tell me. I'm doing this. I'm saying these things because I want to honor you. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. What's my motive, Lord? You check it out. That's good to say on anything, isn't it? And lead me in the everlasting way. Was he right in saying what he did? Yes. Based upon other passages where God hates the wicked and the evil, David says, I hate them too, Lord, because of your righteousness. I don't think that gives us sanction to go around telling people we hate them or tell others we hate them. Don't You don't have to use that. You can tell it to God, I hate the evil. I hate those evil workers that are against you, against your righteousness, about Him. It's not even about you, what they offend you. 
But it's about them offending God. And that's a perfect hatred then when it's going against God's righteousness. Proverbs 6, 16. What? There are more? I didn't know there were so many about that. Yeah, well, uh, God hates a lot of things too. There are six things, and then he says, uh, yes, seven things. Verse uh, uh, 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. What is that? Yes, seven, which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Okay, that's a lot of things there. He starts off with pride and then lying and murder and such. Uh, We're going to move on, but did you notice that? um, What is it that God hates? He hates all those things. Well, obviously. Jeremiah verse uh, chapter 44, get into the prophets here now. Jeremiah 44 verse 4. Yet I sent you all my servants, the prophets, speaking to Israel here again and again, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. Of course, they got into idolatry. It was abomination. And so God hates that. You can go to Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. Hosea, Joel, Amos, right? All in that area in Hosea 9, 15. And their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. This is about Ephraim. Hosea the prophet is saying that. He's saying, I hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Again, it's people that he's aiming at. Amos, yeah, Hosea, Joel, Amos chapter 5, 21. This is quite enlightening, isn't it? I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies when they would get together on the Sabbath, whenever they would have the feast, the festivals, and he said, I hate them. I abhor them. They're evil. I don't delight whenever you come to worship me. Wow. He hates it. Zechariah chapter 8, 17. A little bit further down the road there is an 8, 17. It says... Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Malachi, the very last book. Is Malachi here today? (laughs) I think he might have been named after this prophet. Is that a good guess? What do you think? It's a good name. What does Malachi the prophet here say? We're in uh, Malachi 1, right? 4. We read this section earlier, but 
Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I'll tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Always will be. Always. That nation. Indignation forever. Now, do you see that God hates, God loves? You have election, you have reprobation. Dennis, don't use that word. Please, it sounds really bad. Okay, I'll whisper Reprobation. <laughs> it's okay, because God has designed it. Since the selection involved the words love and hate, that was made before either of the twins were born, Jacob and Esau. It does involve a double predestination on which on one hand, Jacob is destined to salvation. On the other hand, Esau was destined to be passed over and thus to perish. Double predestination. Do you have any trouble with that? It's there. I mean, if he elects some, then what does the other one mean? He didn't elect. Yeah, he didn't elect him because they didn't choose him. Uh, do we see anywhere where people choose him? I dare you to find where that's at, shall we? Uh, reprobation passages. We showed a little bit of this last week. What are reprobation passages, Dennis? Well, we've probably been seeing them all morning here. Go to John 12, 39 and verse 40. Jesus said this. This is Jesus. This is loving Jesus. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said, and this is what we do, folks, when we make a conjecture that seems like a conjecture to people back it up with scripture Jesus even did it as Paul did it as everybody does it he said okay why couldn't they believe well Isaiah said long ago this what he God has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. That is a tough passage. That's in John. The Gospel of John that is dealing with the loving Jesus. And he said it. Wow. Say, what, what did we just read? You have to read over it again. And matter of fact, go into Isaiah. Uh, he blinded Israelites' eyes. Of course, they'd been blinded by Satan. They'd been blinded by themselves. He blinds them. And so therefore, we have that kind of thinking. 13.18 says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Who's that? That is Judas. He didn't say, well, wasn't Judas responsible for what he did as being a traitor? And I say, yes, soundly. But yet the scripture already said beforehand, 
that he would do this horrible deed against Jesus in betraying him. And so there you have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The two go together. And so therefore, God does not tempt. He never makes anybody sin. He's far from it. He uses secondary means, but He does not make people sin. He hardens their heart, which is already hardened. I think that says a lot. Judas here goes the way of Satan and shows exactly who he was. And it was told in Scripture that this would happen. John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, Jesus is praying to the Father. We get to get in on this great prayer. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Who is the son of perdition? That is Judas. And he said, I kept the ones that I chose, but the other one, really he didn't choose him. He was never a chosen one. You can say, how do you put this together in your mind, Dennis? Uh, You probably are going to... That's about as deep as you're going to get on this. You're going to try to reason this out, and you can't, because it goes to the very mind of God. He says both, and we're already into the depths right there. It's well over our heads right now, isn't it? Where we were walking in the shallows, and then we got waist deep up to our neck and now it's over our heads and we're going, I don't get, I don't know how that works. It's okay. Just believe it. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, Judas, gets what he deserves. God fulfills the plan that He had ordained before the foundations of the world. Just believe it. I wish I could go further But men like John Calvin, who is hated by people, by Arminians, they denounce him thoroughly. He says that we cannot take it past what is beyond our own minds. We have to take it there, believe it, and leave it. Maybe in eternity sometime we might be able to understand the deeper things of God that He has chosen not to reveal us. I would love to explain that further. Now, uh, you can go to 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. You can go to Jude chapter 4. We did read that last week. Jude is just before Revelation. I'm not going to make a comment. I'll just read it. For certain persons, false teachers, have crept in unnoticed. People didn't know that they were false teachers. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness 
and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you read that. We'll move on. I do want to say something about passed by. We've been talking about the ones that God did not elect. We're seeing double predestination. We're seeing reprobation. These are terms a lot of times you'll never hear unless you go to seminary. It needs to be known and talked about amongst all Christians. It's here. We've read how many scriptures have we gone through this morning. It's not Dennis saying it. Dennis must be interpreting this wrong. I cannot believe what he's saying. Well, the Westminster Confession has something to say about past might say, well, I only care about Scripture. Well, all of these are based upon the Scriptures that we just read. Are you ready? There's two paragraphs here. I'm going to read verbatim here. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God, before the foundation of the world, was laid according to His eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith. He didn't look down through the annals of time and saw that we would choose Him, which is what you hear today, or good works, it's work salvation, or perseverance, either of them or any other thing in the creature, as conditions, or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's one paragraph. Do you want the next one? That's about the ones he chose. What about the ones he didn't choose? Well, the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of His own will, whereby He extends or withholds mercy. Circle that. Withholds mercy as He pleases for the glory of His sovereign power over His creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of His glorious justice. That's the Westminster Confession, which is backing up, saying basically in a summation of what we have just been reading this morning, to ordain their end, God needs only to withhold His grace, His mercy, His love. Because you see, they're already sinners, and this is what everybody is. And this is where it gets down to mercy. Then you say, well, why me? And I say, exactly. It's for the praise of His glory, of His grace. Wow. To ordain the end, their end, God needs only to withhold that special grace of regeneration. Because we're all on the same level playing field and He picks some out. God has a just judgment upon them for their sins. You can say, well, that's that should be me then because I had sins. Yes. But He happened to pick you out. He chose you. That's the beauty of all this. Let's go to number two. The second question is, God... Unjust? Is God unjust? 
This is the second of two questions. Now remember, the first question dealt with the fact that God and in His Word must have broken His promises in passing over some Jews who had not responded to the Gospel and He also saved some Gentiles. You remember Romans 9? It started off, He was be willing to go to hell for them. But He says, but the who are Israel are not all Israel. Right? That is the context. You can't read it any other way. And like I said before, a lot of people like to say and they'll misinterpret that and say, well, see, Israel is what the church is today. And we've replaced them. And there are some Jews today, but the church is now Israel. Hey, I guys, I want you guys to come next week to Sunday because Israel's going to be here. We don't even use that kind of terminology. What well, the context here is. Israel. What about the Jews? That's the question. And he says, you're not a true Jew unless you are a believer in Christ, trusting in the Messiah. You have faith in Him. And uh, so the deal is, is that Paul answers, they're asking, has God broken His promises? Did He break His promise then about Israel? No. See, the thing is, I want you to get this. Paul answered in the way of saying, the promises were never intended for all the descendants of Abraham. Do you get it? That He never intended that. His promise didn't go to those people He didn't choose even though they are descendants of Abraham. And all of Israel believed that they were the chosen nation. They're the chosen individuals also. And the thing is, they were just mere descendants of Abraham. The promise is to a spiritual Israel. You are born that way, uh, ethnic Israel, and you've been elected to salvation. What does it mean to Gentiles? We weren't born Jews, but we were picked out just like Abraham was. It's the principle of election, choosing one, passing by the other. And I know that sounds rude. The second question now is it's theodicy. Is God just in His actions? Is that just? The first one, has He broken His promises? That was found in in our Romans 9 verse 6. And now, today, in verse 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Of course not. God is just. Uh, Paul begins with God's justice. What does justice mean? It means everybody needs to go to hell. If you do nothing but justice, it would be just to send the whole human race, everybody, to hell. It would be just, wouldn't it? The justification of God. That's what we're dealing with in this theodicy. That sounds like a big word. Man, you are learning a lot of seminary words today. Are you getting them? Is it making sense? I'm not trying to get high words that you can't understand. Theo means what? God. Dissi, theodicy, theodicy is decay. It's the justness or the righteousness of God. Theos, God. Righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. So if you don't want to use that word theodicy, it's okay because I, I forget that word a lot too. But remember this, God is righteous. God is just. Right? Okay, what well, goes underneath that? Okay, number one, 
We've already said it. Number one, all people deserve hell. We're under justice, right? Well then, who should go to hell? Everyone. Number two, people can be saved by mercy, but not justice. Does that sound right? Yeah. Does justice ever save anybody? No, because we're all condemned. We have that sentence. Unless you've been born again, regenerated. So that's number two. Mercy finds its source in the will of God only. Do you know what we're emphasizing now? Justice and mercy. The two met at the cross. It's Christ. The reason we don't get our justice is because we were given mercy. And that's exactly what where Paul is going. And he's going to use two individuals. First one's going to be Moses. Second one, Pharaoh. Which one's saved? Moses. Which one is not? Pharaoh. He will use those two examples. And he'll use Old Testament Scripture to prove it. Paul is arguing for a sovereign God and for electing God and one who sins or passes by the ones who are not His. So, number three is if God judged people by their goodness, do you know it would be unjust? And most of all the religions of the world besides Christianity believes that. That you're somehow just in yourself. If He did that, it would be unequal boundaries. People all over the world, maybe you would be favored here in the United States because you had Bibles everywhere. You had churches on every corner. And I mean, just look at all the benefits and advantages. Everything that the Jew had, we have now even more so because Christ has already been here and we have the Holy Spirit. How more advantaged can you be? You see, it would be unequal. People come from different backgrounds. They come from different parents. If you came from bad parents, chances are you're going to be bad. Not always, but remember, God plays in that. If He's chosen you, He can take you out of bad parenting that you've got and make you His. That's only because election, because the chances are you're going to be exactly like that generation before you. You're going to speak bad words. You're going to take God's name in vain. You're going to drink. You're going to take drugs. You're going to do everything that is not Christian. And the thing is, is we do what we are around. We are extremely advantageous here, but the fact of the matter is, just because somebody goes to church, they were born in church, does it mean that they are automatically saved? Absolutely not, because even Israel, it didn't work that way. Election is really the only thing that is just. Election starts with all people at the same point, on the same field, on the same level, and what is it? They deserve help. Then, election saves some, passes by others, all entirely apart from anything, whatever, that is in the elect or reprobate. No matter how good you may seem, it has nothing to do with that because He chose Jacob and Esau long before they could even do anything. What does that tell you? It's not because of something in you. 
Oh, how much boastful, prideful kind of a person could one be if they say, well, he saw me because I had faith in him. That is arrogant and prideful. Where did it come from? Two objections. People are still objecting. Paul knows they're going to object because that's what they did everywhere he went. From town to town, synagogue to synagogue. First objection is this. Shouldn't God show mercy to everyone? Shouldn't implies that He really ought. He must. This is necessary. They're saying this should be an obligation that God would choose everybody. And we know all Christians would say, "Uh, I know better than that because they're not. Probably because they didn't choose God. But the thing is, we know not everybody goes to heaven, don't we? We know there is a hell. If Christians deny that, then they are denying their Lord and Savior. They're not Christians. But obligation has to do with justice, folks. The issue, when, when you get it back to justice, it's no longer mercy. And that's really where Paul's going on this. Justice can do nothing but send everyone to hell. If he's perfectly justice and doesn't use mercy, if he's under an obligation to his justice then, then we all go to the same place. Do you guys get that? That's the first obligation. Shouldn't God show mercy to everyone? Shouldn't he really really shouldn't that be an obligation? Number 2 is where I think most Christians of our day would be, well, why doesn't God show mercy to everyone? Now, there's a difference now. It's not an obligation. I know He doesn't show mercy to everybody, but why doesn't He? Why didn't He just choose everybody? Boy, how many times have I asked that? In my own thinking, it makes sense. Boy, wouldn't it be great? Let's We're all in this together. Can't we just get along? <laughs> No, we can't. Why doesn't He show mercy to everyone? There's a difference between justice and mercy. But we're still wondering. Well, this is the way God operates. It's His business. I want you to turn to Exodus 33.19. It's what He does. It is Him. It's His very character. It is His nature. To argue against God's election and predestination is actually arguing against the very high nature and character of God. Do you see how serious it is to not believe in what we just talked about this morning? Moses, at this time, is interceding for the people of Israel. He's interceding and and he's begging God that He saves these people. And in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing which you have spoken, for you have found favor in My sight. You've found grace. And I have known you by name. Personal relationship, right? Then Moses said, I pray you, here we go, Show me your glory. You can say, I've heard that one before. Have you guys heard that? Show me your glory. We've sang songs about it. This is where it is at. Right here. Right here. Show me your glory, God. God says, okay, 
I will. I'm going to show you a favor, a mercy, that I don't show to everybody else. Watch. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name, everything there is, that's what name is, everything there is, some of his attributes, the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. I'll be gracious to you. I will be merciful to you. I will be compassionate to you, Moses. I don't have to. And it's you. Right now this time, I'm not going to show it to all of Israel and not even all the elect of Israel. I'm going to show it to you. Moses asked, show me your glory. Did he know what he was asking? And of course, God's, you know, he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me and you'll stand there on the right. He's going to see the backside of His glory. It was enough to blow His mind. What a glimpse of God's glory that He got. You know what it was? It was by God's mercy. Moses didn't deserve that. He didn't expect to see this kind of glory. You know, the revelation of His glory is the greatest priority of God. He wants all of us to see His glory. Jesus prayed for us in that great intercessory prayer. And what was the ultimate part of His prayer? That we would be with Him so that we would see His glory. Folks, that's what we're here today for. In a practical way, we're being taken from one level of glory to another level of glory to another level of glory. And the more that you feed your mind into these deep things, you're going to go on another level of glory. Now that's why we're being sanctified. But there's another level where we get to glory. And that's where we are aiming at. And uh, I want to tell you it's about His sovereignty. Why is this all necessary? The revelation of His glory is the great priority. Well, see, it's right that His name be glorified. God is glorious. He should be glorified. He is to be glorified. He glorifies His name or all that's about Him in displaying wrath towards sinners and riches of His glory toward those who are being saved. He gets glory by showing His wrath or displaying His justice. And He gets glory by displaying His mercy to those He chooses. And I had a bunch of verses dealing with the sovereignty of God. And you have them on your outlines. I don't think I'm going to go through sovereignty of God this morning. We have other times that we can do that. But it's all about Him. Totally sovereign. 
He does what He wants, when He wants. He does not listen to us and if it's something that He's going to do and they don't need to know or it's the way that they want it. He does what He wants. That's absolute sovereignty even in salvation. Now I'm going to move to number three. Mercy is His name. We've already kind of covered that. There's nothing unexpected in God's condemnation. We deserve it. But that God should extend mercy to sinners such as us is absolutely extraordinary that He doesn't give us the wrath. That's the question we should be asking. There was mercy in election to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There was mercy when God delivered Israel from Egypt. And God is a merciful God in Exodus 33, which is where we were at. Number one, Moses wanted to be taught God's ways. You can outline that section pretty quickly. Number two, Moses wanted God's presence. And number three, Moses wanted to see God's glory. You see, it's about the display of His name that he talked about and proclaiming His compassion. Mercy is God's name. John Piper said this, Paul is arguing in Romans 9.15 that there is no unrighteousness with God when He elects unconditionally. Why? We use two keys, but he says the answer is because God's name. He says the essence of His glory consists in His absolute freedom to have mercy on whom He has mercy Compassion, do he has compassion? That's who he is. Folks, his name is mercy. His name is I am, the self existent one. He doesn't operate the way that we operate. He's trying to get us to see that better, and one day we will see it as much as he wants to show. Nothing outside of himself can control anything. I am absolutely self-existent. I determine these things. I have compassion. You have compassion and mercy. You say, what's the difference? Compassion is the feeling behind the action. Mercy is the action where He does it. The compassion is the feeling towards it. Number four, not man's desire, not man's effort. So we've looked at here. Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16 now, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. And folks, I have used this passage so many times on the Arminian. Facing them one on one. And when we get to this, they are aghast. They they have nothing to reply back with. Well, they can go back to John 3.16. They'll always go there. I'm saying, come on. Come on. Get further into the depth of God. You can do better than that. I like John 3.16. Nothing wrong with it at all. But it's not saying this. It's saying something else. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or acts, does, uh, uh, the whole idea here is uh, it's an inner compassion that you have, an inner desire. It's a desire for compassion from God. So it doesn't depend on the man who wills his own will. It doesn't depend on your free will, does it? People that talk about free will, take them right here. Matter of fact, go to John 1, 12 and 13. 
I'm speaking really fast now. I'm probably too loud. I am sorry. Verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. They say, well, see, just believe in His name. That's all you need to do. Well, that's true. But, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not man's will. It's not free will. Nor of the will of man, but of God. Praise John. The Gospel of John. The simple book Gospel of John says this. He comes in with election right in the first chapter. It's all over the book of John, folks. John 6 is one of the best. So what's he saying here? It's, it doesn't depend the people who are born. Everybody's born. Or of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. Man does not have free will to choose God. He has the will to do some other things, but the will of God is what we are focusing on. We go much further and do the Jonathan Edwards thing there, but I don't have time to do that. What is the idea of runneth? I've always heard of that. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. So what are we talking about an athlete here in the, uh, the Olympics? Well, uh, the one who runs, it's an outer effort. Because somebody wants it in their heart... It's not because somebody chases it. We talked about what's in the heart, the desire, the one who has the inner intention. Now it's also the outer effort. It's doing something. But it depends on God who shows mercy. Mercy doesn't come because men desire it. And that's where people say, I have the choice. Mercy doesn't come because men work for it. Mercy becomes because God predetermines to give it. Ishmael desired the blessing. He didn't get it. Esau ran for the blessing. He didn't get it. It's not a him who wills. It's not a him that runs. It's all of God. It doesn't come from the human being. It's outside ourselves. It comes from God. We can't regenerate ourselves. Neither of them received it and finish it off. Number five, and I'll probably take off on this next week for this. I, I hate to just move on, but that's 16. Did you catch that? Boy, that's a great one. 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, now he's covered Moses, and Moses was elect, right? Mercy, compassion. And it was stated, and it was about the name of God and the very character of God in Exodus 33. Now you know what he does? He goes back to Scripture, back to Exodus. For this very purpose, I raised you up. It's out of Exodus 9.16, and I'll take time next week probably to get further. To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed. His name, mercy name, the power of God name, the I Am, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And he said, hey, I lifted you up. Pharaoh, and he's, you know, basically he spoke to Pharaoh, Moses speaking there. I raised you up, Pharaoh. You were elect, not to salvation, but you were elect for a unique purpose to bring you up as the king of all the planet Earth. The Egyptians, the great Egyptian empire, and this one particular Pharaoh who was, uh, had the name of Amenhotep. There we go, Avel. Another name hard to understand. 
He says, I raised you up. In other words, you're the Pharaoh because I determined that you would be Pharaoh. I brought you up. You didn't get there on your own. No leader is. They're all put there. I raised you up that I might show my power in you and my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That's what He did. He demonstrated His power, God did, by bringing this man up to be the leader of the universe. (laughs) Or the planet. Whatever. One of the greatest Old Testament displays of God's redeeming power. But here's the negative side of that. And we finish, and I'm sorry, but we really need to be done. He has mercy on whom He desires. He hardens whom He desires. He gave mercy to uh, Moses. And he hardened that one he raised up, Pharaoh. And we'll get into that hardening next week. But I do want to tell you, there's an irreconcilable tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we uh, we were appointed long before we were born. And that's the whole idea. It's all God and everything. Somebody can say it's not fair. Well, the answer is Paul says it is right. Because God is a righteous God. And if you can say, I don't understand anything we said today. Here's what I want you to do. Here's something you can understand. God is righteous. Amen. Let's sum it up. That's it. Let's go to the Lord. Sovereign. Father, great God, You are absolutely sovereign. You do what You want when You want. You do things that we don't like. You do so many things at the time that we did not have in mind. So many of our plans are destroyed because of Your great sovereignty. And well, we should be thanking You because You always always know what is best. Even when we think it's best, we turn out it, it could be a disaster. Lord, thank You for intervening into my will. I do not take pride, Lord, in my free will. I don't want free will whatsoever. I want Your will. Jesus said to be praying in the name of Christ, to be praying the will of the Father. And that's what we want to be less of Dennis, less of us, and more of Christ because You are putting Your will into us as we trust more and more in You and we release those things that seem so important and You say, die. Die to those things. Come closer to Me. Lord, keep us from idols. And that's ourselves. Keep us from things that are really not important. Help us to really take You seriously because we fail at that. We so much forget to take You seriously. Lord, thank You for the great grace, the mercy and love. And Lord, what a redeeming message that is, the good news, because You elected us, You chose us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 12 o'clock on the dot. Yes, let's sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Caroline. Happy birthday to you. And many more.